Hi, Idaho and true crime followers alike. My name is Andy with an I, and this is the Idaho Crime Squad Pod. going to waste any time here. I know you guys are dying for part two, so welcome to the pod, potato state, yada yada yada. We left off kind of all over the place. In 1997, Keith Hescock was apprehended by Idaho Fish and Game and tipped off to Custer County Sheriff's Office about some suspicious coincidences. And then we kind of touched on a 14-year-old girl who claimed to have escaped from Hescock's house after being abducted by him just hours earlier. And that event happened in 2002 in Idaho Falls, and we'll get back to that here in a second. But back to Hescock in 97. The reason Fish and Game even called in the tip was because when they were searching Hescock during his initial arrest for illegal poaching, he had physical hard copies of child pornography on him. Now, I should mention that Hescock denied that the girls in the photos were underage. But apparently to investigators, it was blatantly obvious that these were children, some pictures looking as young as 10 years old. They were able to place Hescock near Chalice the day Stephanie went missing, because he was hunting there. And there's proof of this, because Fish and Game had record of Hescock shooting a bighorn sheep on October 11th, 1993. Upon further digging into Keith Hescock, investigators quickly discovered that in 1993, he had actually registered a vehicle that matched the description of the truck spotted near the school the day Stephanie went missing. It was a yellow pickup with a pinstripe. When a search warrant for Hescock's residence is granted, police are looking for anything that might tie him to Stephanie. It's been four years since she disappeared and and although that is plenty of time to ditch any evidence linking him to the crime, investigators are hoping this man is stupid enough to maybe have kept some sort of trophy. I hate to phrase it that way because that is a disgusting way to look at it. And I want to make it very clear that I'm using that term from the mind of a monster. True crime people know what I'm talking about. It's decently common for predators or serial killers to keep items from their victims in attempts to preserve their memory and usually to help aid in sexual acts. And as morbid as this is, it's been helpful countless times to catch a perpetrator or tie some cold cases to someone that investigators didn't even know were related. Some notable ones being Willie Pickton, who kept women's ID cards and jewelry, James Lloyd, who collected high heels, Jerry Brudos, who kept victims' underwear, and then the more obvious ones, Ed Gein, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, who kept actual body parts. So this is the hopes of detectives as they comb through Hescock's belongings, only to be left disappointed. They found absolutely nothing of note. On top of this, Keith Hescock was no longer in possession of the pickup that had matched the one seen in Chalice. And with only very basic circumstantial evidence, the case again goes cold. Now, I know listeners right now are screaming like, this is our guy. That was my initial reaction as well. But hang on, because we have a few more suspects that may change your mind. Like I said in part one, Stephanie's father, Ben, would take his daughters to Washington in 1998, leaving behind Grandma Hazel, who has experienced an overwhelming amount of loss in her lifetime. Hazel states that she believes anything is possible in this case, and Stephanie very much could still be alive somewhere. Another three years would go by before anything else would come to light. But in May of 2000, 
Custer County received a name. This person was an inmate in the detention center in Nampa, which is just west of Boise. And the tip stated that this person may have information on Stephanie Crane's disappearance. During the official interview, the inmate tells detectives that a female friend of his was renting a room in a man's apartment back in 1993. This female friend had stated that she and several neighbors heard a child crying from down in the basement, which had a boarded-up window well that faced the sidewalk. Luckily, investigators were able to find this woman. She stated that, yes, she had rented a room for her and her children in 1993 in Nampa, from a man who often drifted between Idaho and Oregon. She went on to say that this man gave her the ick for many reasons, and his behavior was a little concerning. Like, for instance, he did always keep the basement locked, and when she asked him about this, he told her there was, in fact, a little girl down there. He claimed it was his own daughter and that she was being punished for something like running away. After this unsettling encounter, the woman claimed that while her landlord was out, she kind of snooped through his room, where she was shocked to find girls' underwear hidden away. Now, it's not clear whether this was little girl's underwear or if she could even tell. Either way, she immediately took her belongings, her children, and fled the apartment. Now, the big question here is, why did she never report this to police? And the answer is, we don't know. It could be fear of retaliation. I mean, he was her landlord. He probably knew everything about her, including her social security number, full name, and date of birth. It's possible that she did report this, but it was either never taken seriously or the little girl had been moved by then. Another unanswered question is, when did she put it together that this might be Stephanie Crane? Was it even her that put it together or was it her inmate friend? And just to be clear, investigators probably do know the answers to this, but it's never formally stated in anything I could find. So detectives in Nampa start digging into this man's past, and they find that in November of 1992, less than a year before Stephanie went missing, he was arrested for a sex charge involving a minor. This happened in Portland, and the victim was his own daughter. Now, what drives me up a freaking wall? He took a plea bargain in this case and never served any jail time. He was given six months probation and allowed to move to Idaho. I think I speak for everyone when I say, what the fuck, Oregon? After tracking this man down at his place of employment in Nampa, he agreed to submit to a polygraph, which we all know is not admissible in court, but they can be useful for detectives to indicate if they are potentially on the right track with a suspect. This man was asked a number of questions, but when the experts asked their three questions about Stephanie Crane, it was shown that he was being extremely deceptive. Investigators head to Chalice to talk to the employee of the bowling alley who was working the day that Stephanie vanished. When shown a photo lineup, the employee picked the Oregon-Idaho drifter and stated this is the man who was watching the kids bowl. A search warrant is granted on the property where they believe Stephanie might have been held in the basement. Here they found a mattress with what appeared to be a large bloodstain and a rope with hairs tangled around it. It takes two months for this evidence to be tested, and are you ready to be frustrated? The results are basically inconclusive. The lab cannot determine if the blood is human or animal. And while the hair is determined to be human, there's no follicle attached. And the crime squad knows you can't run for DNA if there's no follicle. And again, guys, the case goes cold. Now, this man is still considered a person of interest, which is why they have not released his name. I want to remind all of our listeners to please Google a sex offender map. I use the one provided by the state police, and you can find it at isp.idaho.gov. It will ask you for your street address, and then it'll show you all the registered sex offenders in your area. 
Two years later, in 2002, Keith Hescock hits police radar once again. On June 5th of that year, a 14-year-old girl is reported missing from her home in Bonneville County, kind of Idaho Falls area. The girl and her sister had slept on the trampoline the night before, and when a family member went to check on them around 5.30 a.m., the girl was gone. The family first called around town to see if she had gone to a friend's house, but that would be very out of character for her. When they reported her missing around 10.30 that morning, a massive search started, including helicopter assistance as well as search dogs. They scoured the nearby fields and canals, desperate to find any clues leading them to her. But at around 3 p.m., miraculously, the mother received a call that so many parents of missing children are desperate to hear. It was her daughter, and she was alive. The 14-year-old girl was returned home wearing the same pajamas she was wearing the night before. She went into detail about how the events unfolded and stated that her abductor told her that he had done this before, saying that he had, quote, kidnapped a little girl and killed her, close quote. He then raped her, handcuffed her to the bed, and left for work. The girl was able to get a hold of a nearby fire extinguisher, which she used to pound on the handcuffs until they gave way and wasted no time fleeing for her life. Upon rescue, she was able to give a description of the man as well as lead investigators straight to his front door. This was the residence of Keith Hescock. SWAT and Bonneville County deputies waited outside of his home for him to return, but when he saw them, he incited a three-county high-speed chase through Kelly Canyon and then onto a service road. He then high-centered his work truck and ultimately the chase resulted in a deputy being shot in the leg, a police dog named Rick losing its life, and Hescock committing suicide. A little side note, the police officer went on to make a full recovery. The police dog was a two-year-old Belgian Malinois. There's a police dog memorial page for Rick. Just Google Rick Idaho police dog. It should be the first one, and you can leave him a sweet reflection like I did. Since Hescock's cowardly suicide, obviously a lot of questions arose. One in particular, though, has a lot of people, including investigators, convinced. Hescock was probably involved in the disappearance of another young girl but not Stephanie. In September of 2001, six months before Hescock died, a 20-year-old named Amber Hoops went missing from Bonneville County and was never found. In fact, Hescock was already a person of interest in Amber's disappearance before he kidnapped the 14-year-old. But to investigators on Stephanie's case, they seemed to look at this as a red herring. They felt like they already had their guy, the Oregon Idaho drifter, and to be honest, I agreed with them fully. That was until a strange occurrence brought in a third suspect. Now, remember how I told you guys not to put all your eggs in one basket? This is by far the strangest of all the eggs. In 2006, a man near Thorn Creek, Idaho, is found dead by what police are investigating as a suicide. This unnamed man did leave behind a note describing feelings of guilt that he stated spiraled him into taking his own life. He expressed that he was living with a secret told to him years ago by a friend named Kevin Mooney. According to this man, Mooney described picking up a girl in Chalice raping and killing her and had referred to her as Steph. Custer County, Idaho State Police, and the FBI jumped on this lead. And upon further digging, they find that Kevin Mooney is a 42-year-old male who cannot hold down a job and only really has a few minor drug convictions, but nothing violent. Mooney is brought in for questioning where he states that he doesn't remember if he was near Chalice in October of 1993. He also states that he has no fucking idea why his friend would say such a thing in his suicide note. Hoping to clear up the alleged misunderstanding, he submits to not only a polygraph, but allows investigators to search his home. Cadaver dogs were brought to the search and did not hit on anything, 
And he also passes the polygraph. Now, my husband brought up an interesting point here. Do you guys remember that blue van that was spotted in Chalice with the two men who were acting suspicious at the gas station? What if that was Kevin Mooney and some other person or even his now deceased friend? And while it seems like a reach, it begs the question. Why in the ever-living fuck would someone's dying wish be to implicate their friend in Stephanie's disappearance? Grandma Hazel stated that she feels the police have done a good job protecting her emotions during the ups and downs of this case, and described being very grateful that they didn't tell her about every single lead. Stephanie's loved ones state that even 30 years after she disappeared, she remains in their hearts. In my opinion, I feel like the Oregon-Idaho drifter is our most likely suspect, but when you leave a review for our podcast, let us know what you think. The drifter is still being pursued as a suspect, and as recent as 2021, he was re-interviewed by police, although we don't have any information about it. That being said, we can assume he is still living in Idaho or Eastern Oregon, and this man, regardless of if he took Stephanie, is a danger to you, your children, and our community. In closing, I'd like to offer my condolences to Stephanie's family as well as the family of Amber Hoops. Families I've interviewed who are missing a loved one describe feelings of anguish, helplessness, and desperation that they wouldn't wish on their worst enemy. And the best thing as Idahoans that we can do for these families is continuing to talk about these missing people in hopes to spark something that can lead to a tip. So please, if you're listening, stranger things have happened than solving a cold case. Start talking to your friends and family about Stephanie's case, especially if you live in the Chalice or Treasure Valley area. It's been 30 years since she was taken, and you never know who is ready to talk. If you have any information about Stephanie Crane, please call the Custer County Sheriff's tip line at 208-879-5372 and leave a message. Even if it's small or you think it's irrelevant, it could be the tip that leads us to an arrest and ultimately some closure. Again, that number is 208-879-5372. That's it for today, guys. For the Idaho Crime Squad, my name is Andy with an I. Take care and stay safe. The Idaho Crime Squad Pod is an Idaho Crime Squad production. Trademark 2022. All rights reserved.